A great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. And he answers. And if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. Hello and welcome to The Letterbox Show, a podcast about the movies people love watching from Letterbox, the social network for people who love watching movies. I'm Slim, she's Gemma, and you know the drill. We're joined each episode by a Letterboxed friend or two for a chat about their four favorite films. This week, we have two very special Letterboxed pals on the show, and the four of us are going to talk about each of our four favorite films from among the 94th Academy Award nominees, whether or not they actually won. In fact, three of our four favorite Oscar films were capital R-O-B-B-E-D, robbed. So we will talk a bit about why that is, but first meet our guests. Friend of the Letterbox Show, the Blacklist Director of Community, erotic cinema lover and hottie in a red dress in the Oscars, press room please welcome kate hagan hello guys happy to be back as always so excited to have you and the man who is always looking for the next best film a critics choice member the owner and editor-in-chief of the entertainment awards website next best picture host of the next best picture podcast literally one of the busiest men in film coverage i don't know how he does it the one and only matt neglia Thank you so much for having me here. This is great. I can't wait to get into this conversation with all of you all. The Oscar fever is real right now. We, we all four of us still have it. I'm burning up. You are burning up right now, Gemma. <laughs> can see it on the camera. As we were recording, it was just a few nights ago, but by the time this comes out, maybe it's all old news, last week's news, but it's still real to us, dang it. And our group today has some unique insights into the events leading up to and inside the room. So we're excited to dig into the gossip, the drama, and the wins. Uh, while we're talking about our personal faves, this episode includes Spencer, Coda, Nightmare Alley, and Gemma's own Cyrano. Yeah, but I want to get this off my chest right now. My real fave, my real fave, of course. I had a dog in this Oscars fight, and it was... <laughs> The power of the dog, literally because New Zealand's reigning cinema queen is Dame Jane Campion. So congratulations, Jane, you did it. And Kate, I'm exceedingly proud and jealous because you got your own special moment with the dame in the Oscars press room. Please spill. Oh my goodness, guys. Um, well, to give a bit of context on how the press room works at the Oscars is it's a bunch of journalists in a big ballroom in the Lowe's Hotel and everybody has a number and winners come through as they are awarded and you hold your number up and you say a prayer that you might get called upon for people that you are excited to talk to. Um, but obviously there's no bets on anything and you're kind of just wishing and hoping. In 2020, I got really lucky. I got to ask Taika Waititi a question. Um, so I was feeling emboldened by that experience. And because the eight awards that were presented during the golden hour sort of set the press room back a little bit longer than it typically goes through. By the time Jane came through, it was quite late into the evening and the show had ended. And, you know, obviously there was quite a bit of distraction around the moment with Will Smith and Chris Rock. Um, and strangely, I think because of that, it was a little bit easier to ask questions of some of the big winners at the end of the night. Um, so I put my number up fully thinking I was like, not going to happen. There's no way. Um, and I got called upon as the second to last person in the press room who got to ask Jane Campion a question, which was a huge thrill for me. Um, I wish the question I asked her had been formulated a little bit better in terms of, uh, what exactly I was asking her. Um, what I meant to say was sort of like around the idea of like legacy and female filmmakers and what that means to be creating a legacy 30 years after the piano and bringing collaborators along the way with her. But it did not come out that elegantly. I think it came out beautifully. And I and I, I think it sounded I, great to me. Slim, we might have a clip. Should we pull the clip? Can we can we play the clip? We can. Can we play the clip? 
Hi, Jane. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a tremendous film. And I just wanted to say congratulations also for winning for directing after winning for writing the piano almost 30 years ago. I'm wondering how this experience feels different to you than that experience, um, especially because you've been so vocal about bringing a lot along a lot of your collaborators throughout your career through this process, including a lot of your female collaborators. And you get to celebrate that tonight as well. Well, just going back 27 years ago when the, um, when I won Best uh, Original Screenplay, I had my daughter four months in my belly. And so it was a very different experience, you know, and this, 27 years is a long time and, you know, I've been chugging away doing things. And so it's, this is like a real comeback and uh, it's beautiful to feel that you can do that. You can keep developing as a director and get stronger and, um, you know, I love working with women because they're, because of the beautiful qualities of, you know, they're maternal, they're outspoken, they're emotional, they're truthful, they're real, and they're incredibly freaking talented. It sounded great just now. I listened back to it, completely eloquent, an amazing moment. I thought she was going to win it all. I thought Best Picture was in the bag for Power of the Dog. Yeah, I lost my Oscar pool because I had Power of the Dog as, as Best Picture, and I was happy to lose. I do have to share this small personal anecdote the Piano is one of my mom's favorite movies of all time. And we love Jane Campion and we love that film. And like, that is what I was thinking of most when I was talking to her in the press room was I was thinking about my mom. And so then when she started talking about pre being pregnant with her daughter, when she went for the piano, it took everything I had to not start crying immediately. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting weepy right now just thinking about it. Um, but I did not transcribe it. So thank God video exists because otherwise I just would not have known what was said in that moment. <laughs> um, but she was lovely. I was so excited for her. Um, how cool to have female directors win in back to back years. What a beautiful full circle moment for her. And I hope that this makes financing whatever her next project is a lot easier and I certainly hope that we will get several more Jane Campion films before she is ready to sort of ride off into that beautiful sunset as a filmmaker. My favorite Oscars game to completely change the subject is, is pick the winner by what they're wearing on the red carpet. And when mm. I saw Kristen Stewart in shorts versus Jess Chastain in that shimmering ombre Gucci number, I mean, I knew that Chastain had it. But Kristen... It's fair to say at Letterboxd will always be our Letterboxd princess. So Matt, let's start with your 2022 Oscar fave, Spencer, which in fact came out on top in your next best picture poll in which you asked which Oscar nomination made you the happiest. Yeah, I saw this movie um, at Telluride after it had premiered at the Venice International Film Festival. And I had been a big fan of Pablo Lorraine's uh, film Jackie, which in a lot of ways is very similar to Spencer. But Spencer in particular, the, what really resonated with me so much about this movie and why it worked for me was because, number one, I like challenging movies. I like movies that don't spoon feed me. I like to be able to work while I'm watching the movie intellectually. Even if I don't fully get it sometimes, it gives me an opportunity to uh, learn about something or rewatch it again to catch stuff I didn't really catch on the first viewing. So all for all the reasons that people decried and said Spencer was nowhere near as good as they were hoping it would be, for me, it completely did everything I needed it to. Um, and I also didn't, I, I kind of kept like the crown comparisons out of my mind. I know a lot of people did that a lot with this movie as well, considering the latest season of that show was incredible. So it was already kind of fighting like this uphill battle, if you will, amongst audiences. But when I saw it, I was really just awestruck by the craft of it all. I thought Claire Mathen should have been in the best cinematography uh, conversation a lot more this year as a female cinematographer. And then I also found things like the production design, the costumes, the score by Johnny Greenwood, um, everything down to how the food was even uh, shot and crafted in this movie. I, I, I was just in awe of this movie from a technical standpoint. But the part of it that resonates with me is the fact that Kristen Stewart playing Princess Diana in this movie is so constricted, so overwhelmed, and so trapped in a world that is beyond her control. And she's doing her best to try and control whatever she can, not just for her own sanity, but also for her children as well, trying to keep it together as a mother to show them resilience and strength. 
And that was something that really spoke to me. And I thought Kristen Stewart absolutely conveyed all of those complex emotions in a way that, honestly, I've never really seen her disappear uh, and transform herself the way that I saw her do so here, uh, from literally the toes all the way up to the head, and not just from a makeup standpoint or anything like that, but I'm talking like actually physically embodying uh, that pain and that resilience uh, simultaneously at the same time. And you could see how stressed, uh, it, uh, the stress it put on like her body, her mannerisms, the way she spoke, every line, it felt like she was delivering it while trying to hold back tears. Uh, I found it to be very incredibly moving. And of course, knowing what we know about what happened to Princess Diana in real life, for that movie to ha have such a focus on her relationship with her children and for the movie to end in that moment, um, it just hit me like such a gut punch at the end of the movie. And I, oh I have God. a rule that anytime I cry during a film or if I shed tears, I immediately have to bump it up a point from wherever <laughs> I was before because <laughs> that's just a sign that the movie worked, you know? Uh, and I was in tears uh, by the time the credits rolled on this one. I, I really, really wish that people had given it uh, a fair shake uh, than what it received uh, this award season. But that's why the nomination for her may be the happiest because th she was not a sure thing and she missed a SAG nomination. She missed a BAFTA nomination. Mm. So heading into Oscar nomination morning uh, for her film to get completely blanked, but for her to still make it through in the end, uh, that was extremely satisfying on a number of levels. I want to say, yes, I agree with everything you said about the music, Johnny Greenwood slaps, but was this not the best Mike and the Mechanics needle drop in the history of cinema? <laughs> miracle <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also want to shout out it was so cool to see Kristen Stewart on the red carpet with her partner Dylan Meyer mm -hmm. who is a brilliant writer and it, I am hard pressed to think of um, a same sex a list couple that has been on an Oscar red carpet somebody can certainly correct me if I'm wrong but I thought that was just amazing from from that standpoint and they seemed like they were having a great time at the show which we love to see great time I mean I loved Moxie mm -hmm. so Moxie is the is the super cute teen feminist you know coming of age story that's on Netflix Dylan wrote it there was this gorgeous moment on the red carpet where you know and 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 the photographers want the stars on their own right and they often come on with their family or their partner or whoever. So they posed together. They dressed similarly. It was really cute. But as Dylan was taking her leave, because she knew that it was, you know, Kristen's moment with the photographers, Kristen just pulled her back and gave her a kiss. And it was this, this moment of, this is your industry too, honey. Right. This is this is sitting at a 3.8 average on Letterboxd. It's got 2,000 fans. And uh, Jack pulls the facts together every episode. This is the reigning champ of Pablo Lorraine's filmography, number one in popularity and highest rated over Jackie. And per our year in review, you know, as of December 31st, not today's stats, it landed at number 35 in the year in review, making it the fourth highest biopic, biopic of the year and ranks in Neon's top 10 narrative films. So it's no slouch. That's for sure. Goofiest. <laughs> I love Jack's facts. Goofiest legit award Spencer won is Best Time Capsule from the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards. <laughs> I keep track of those awards all season long. And so as soon as you said Best Time Capsule, I was like, yep, the AARP. That's, like, <laughs> that's them. <laughs> yeah, but so my favorite stats about this movie come from, um, so I don't know if either of you follow Alison M on Letterboxd. She is... A brilliant movie reviewer, but she also uh, reviews with a vegan's point of view. Yes, um, and so, yes. So her films come with vegan alerts. And I do think that Spencer, for obvious reasons, for anyone who's seen even the opening scene, uh, opening scenes, comes with quite the vegan alert. I'm not going to read it all out, but I am just going <laughs> to attempt to try running through them. Vegan alert, lobster, an insane amount of pearls, sausages, desserts with milk and eggs, including strawberry shortcake, animal leg in walk-in freezer, 
fur lined coat, breakfast includes eggs, cream, and Scottish kippers. Chef tells Diana pheasants will likely get run over, so he tries to justify them getting hunted. Diana says she'll have a pheasant feather in her hat. Diana's father's big leather jacket, but in vegan points, Spencer wins on Princess Diana, spoiler alert, trying to stop the violence towards the pheasants and. The queen loves her dogs. There's a lot of dogs. <laughs> Some great corgi acting in the film. Absolutely. <laughs> 40 corgis oh. came out of that car when, it, when she came out. It was insane. It's like when you're at the circus and you see a bunch of Clown clowns car. getting out of a small car. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I just love, I, I watched this with my mom and my sister. Uh, I have a really ridiculously weird relationship with Princess Diana um, for, for the longest time. She was you know, one of the few role models we white women had in this world (laughs) in terms of how to be a good white woman in the world and, you know, in terms of her charitable acts, but also, you know, as, as a New Zealander, we are a colony of the British empire. And so we uh, were a recipient of a Royal tour uh, where the newlyweds came on down to New Zealand. And um, I absolutely convinced my father that he had to drive me to a particular spot in suburban Auckland where I knew that their car was going to be going past on the way to the airport on the way out of the visit. And so, but we didn't know which side of the car she was going to be on. So our family of six split into groups of three and had a camera (laughs) on each side of the road. And somewhere (laughs) in our boxes of family memories, we have a photograph of Charles's hand waving and Diana's white gloved hand waving. Big moment in my life. I also played Princess Diana in the uh, annual uh, Catholic parish fancy dress parade where we we gathered up all the kids from our street to be the entire royal wedding party and we (laughs) and we won a special award and um and then when she died you know the night before the funeral I had a princesses and playboys sort of party but it was more a tribute night where we really leaned into the loss of this quite extraordinary charitable worker, to be honest. So in my Catholic school, we just had the passions of the cross. <laughs> I had to act that out. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're dressing up as Princess Di having the time of your life. I'm dying for Catholic sin over here <laughs> when I was a kid. I know, and I'm getting into the Anglicans. <laughs> anyway, the letterbox synopsis for this film is super boring. So um, I I want to change it up for Jay, letterbox member Jay's Uh, review by way of synopsis. Kristen Stewart is again accepted into a family of blood-sucking demons, this time with horrific consequences. And it really (laughs) is, you know, it plays out like a horror film. Uh, And so I think I'm going to attempt to do a segue from horror to feel-good family movie. <laughs> because we need it, we need those movies in our lives, Gemma. This I mean, was this was the best picture winner, and we need Coda in our lives. What is we wrong with a crowd films. pleaser? I ask you. What is wrong? There's nothing. Uh, honestly, wrong. I ask myself that every Oscar season. I don't know why everybody <laughs> seems to hate them so much. <laughs> this this has a 3.9 average on Letterbox. 630 fans. Uh, as a coda, child of deaf adults, Ruby is the only hearing person in her deaf family. And when the family's fishing business is threatened, Ruby finds herself torn between pursuing her love of music and her fear of abandoning her parents. So full disclosure, I had West Side Story originally as my pick for this episode, mainly because I hadn't watched Coda yet. It was, <laughs> I remember I had like an inside joke with my friends, like, didn't Coda come out two years ago? Why is Coda in the running for this movie? It, it felt like it had been out for so long. and It had, like 14 months. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. long ago. So some of my friends had watched it uh, and they liked it a lot. And but some of the critiques were it, you know, for better or worse, felt like a lifetime, you know, family movie. Couldn't kind of believe that it was nominated. So I watched it the night after the Oscars. Wait, the night after? <laughs> the night after, I did not watch it for the Oscars. So I signed up for, I got that three-month free trial to Apple TV+, Plus. Uh, set a calendar alert to cancel that in three months, and I was blown away by this movie. I loved it. You had said, Matt, earlier about every time you cry, it goes up a level. Then my rating for this movie could have been 30 stars, for God's sake, the amount of times I cried during this movie. I, I loved it. It's it is a feel good movie. I loved everyone's performance in it, but the final act and the lead up. I joke about some other streamers about how some of the movies that they put out, the originals are like 
machine learned scripts. <laughs> like they just put it together and they make that movie. <laughs> this one felt like structured to make you feel every emotion in the rainbow to the 11th degree. In the final act, I was a mess. It was like the ending of Roma <laughs> on my couch with my dog right next to me. I was losing it. I was all in. I gave five stars on a letterbox. Kate, Kate, any thoughts on, on Coda and how you felt watching it? You know, I'm going to make a confession. I haven't watched Coda <gasps> yet, guys. Cut the, cut the stream. I haven't cut, watched end, it yet. End the interview. It's, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's all right. I, I just watched it for the first time, we too. Like, as, we like to say, as we like to say, the Letterbox show is a safe space. I, I'll also say, too, as of uh, three three or four weeks ago, most Academy members had not watched Coda either, so yeah, you're okay. Exactly. Uh, I will get to it on my Apple TV+. Plus. But I did just rewatch Children of a Lesser God, which I had only seen one time previously. And I was just so moved by what an experience it must be to be Marley Matlin and to have been the first deaf actor, not only to be recognized by the Academy, but just by actors in the the industry at large. Um, Ariana DeBose said a really beautiful thing in the press room. She was like, you know... I'm just happy that Rita Moreno is not going to be so lonely anymore. I'm happy that mm. she's not going to be so alone and being like, you know, the one of the few Latinas that's ever won Best Supporting Actress and winning it specifically for this role in West Side Story with Anita. And I, I have to think that, you know, I don't want to speak for Marley Matlin, certainly, but I have to think this whole arc of CODA and this award season has to feel incredibly full circle for her and how exciting for her to then sort of pass the torch to Troy Kotzer, who for me was the winner of the entire award season. Mm-hmm. Just the loveliest human, mm-hmm. so gracious, so lovely with press. Um, and I'm really excited to see what Troy does next. Like I, that to me is like the real power of CODA is that I think it's really going to kick a door open in a major way in terms of how we think about not just deaf representation on screen, but disability representation on mm. screen and what's possible. I know, um, I know what I want Troy to do next. I've already got it. I've got, I've got the synopsis. <laughs> Kate, you can help me write it. We'll get it into, okay, we'll get okay. it into the blacklist this year. It's Troy Kotzer and Paul Racy as a deaf and coda metal band. Oh, stop. On tour. (laughs) It's a road movie. Wow. It's a fucking road movie. It's going to be amazing. I don't know what else happens, but, you know, you can buy it from me now. It's, yeah. Apple, call me. (laughs) 25 million. It's a steal. (laughs) That's the the other fascinating thing to me about Coda, though, too, is, you know, to go from the biggest Sundance acquisition to Best Picture. I read this stat. I don't know if this is true or not. So, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, that I believe it's the first... Um, it's one of the first big Sundance winners to also then win Best Picture. It's yes. uh, th- th- it's yeah. the first movie to ever premiere at Sundance to go on to win the Oscar for Best Picture. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that oh. is the stat mm-hmm. I was looking so, for. Yeah. So out of um, all of us, I am the one who saw it at Sundance thanks to Sundance's. So did I. Yeah. Oh, great. There we go. It was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. This uh, I saw it on the very first day. And I have to say, once again, and we we say this every year, well, the last two years to Sundance, thank you for your accessibility measures. They are extraordinary. I saw it at Sundance. I knew then that it would go all the way to the Oscars, not just based on Apple's record-breaking sale price, but the feel-good factor, the historic and totally, frankly, adorable casting, the 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 use of both sides now, which, you know, I mean, you know, you've got to, when you've got a needle drop like that, a cast like that and a feel good factor like that, and you, and, and then you add really good campaign strategy in, you know, it's going to go all the way. I didn't think it was going to be best film, but I definitely knew that Troy Kotzer was a shoe in. Same Gemma, because like when I saw it at Sundance too, um, I'm always kind of looking out for what's going to be a doc contender or what could be that Sundance indie that gets the best picture nomination or a screenplay nomination, something. And I too, when I saw this, you know, I don't like to usually go straight for the best picture conversation because it's just so early in the year, Mm. but you could feel that this was something special. And then because Sundance that year uh, was all virtual from home, yeah. You couldn't watch it with, with a crowd, and this would have killed with oh a crowd at the Eccles Theater. Uh, yeah. But what you did see was you saw everybody euphorically praising this movie um, all over social media after they had watched it. And 
similar reaction to um, over Summer of at Soul, my place. right? Oh yeah, uh, it, and similar, day one. yeah, yeah, same night, day one, mm-hmm. same night, same feast, same reaction, and you know, I feel I feel sad for Flea for not picking up that Oscar, but <sighs> Summer of Soul, the, the, just that it's yeah, buzz. Buzz comes and goes, but the buzz never faded for those two films. It was no, uh, Flea. Flea, you know what? I I was very close on that campaign, and uh, I could tell you that they were very, very happy to make history with those three nominations uh, for it. Yeah. And you know, y- I would never say this to them or anything like that, but like deep down, I knew because it was three nominations, it would split the vote. Mm. Whereas. If it had only gotten one nomination in one of those categories, I think it could have won. So let's talk about a bit about campaigns and how they work, mm. because th- there is a familiarity factor as well. And Questlove is familiar. You know, he's on the TV yes. every night. He's, you know, people love him. And there was something really extraordinary about that film, about pulling black history out of an attic and, you know, putting it back on screen where it belongs. And I'm just really, I mean... Does it, maybe it needs to be said out loud for uh, any listeners who don't deeply understand this. You can buy an Oscar. You don't just turn up on the night and win your Oscar. That Oscar has been hard won and it has been bought in many ways. Gemma's about to just crack this case wide open. This is like a JFK (laughs) theory. We might get pulled down from Apple for this episode based on what I'm hearing right now. <laughs> well, okay. Let me explain what that means. And you know, I, I want I no part of this. It. My hands are clean of this audience. <laughs> I'm not related to this. I have no prior knowledge. To be fair, the people who run awards campaigns, you know, the publicists and strategists, uh, ha- you know, have to believe in the film that they're working yes. on. Yeah, absolutely. So the film has to be good. There has to be buzz around it. There has to be love for it. There has to be, you know, letterboxed five-star reviews for it. Otherwise, it's not going to play in the in the awards season. But, um, you know, these are these Netflix, for example, and this is, I found this amazing Business Insider article about Netflix's Power of the Dog campaign. They picked up 12 nominations. So they have a VP of Talent Relations and Awards, and she has 40 full-time strategists and another 15 consultants who also work on the Emmys and other awards year-round. And they spend top dollar to court Oscar voters in the months leading up to the awards ceremony. Um, She, by the way, Lisa Tabak, worked on the Miramax campaigns for Oscars in in the late 90s and early 2000s when those films really dominated. And, you know... It works. They picked up 27 nominations this year across all of their films. Um, But when it comes down to the actual voting, you know, like you say that CODA really only was being talked about in the last few weeks. And why was that? Partly it was because Apple was spending money on making sure that that incredibly wonderful cast were turning up to all the awards campaigns or not. Matt, you're a Critics' Choice member. You tell us. I do have a theory behind this, actually. Um, so Netflix has a lot of money. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of influence. So too does Apple. And Apple is more new at this than Netflix are. Uh, but Netflix got in early. They started their campaign for Power of the Dog at Venice, where Jane Campion won the Best Director Award. Uh, they brought it to every single major film festival. They made sure to make to they made sure to, to um, ensure that that film got widely seen by every film critic, every person that attended the festival, every person ever even thought about ever going to a film festival. <laughs> Everyone saw Power of the Dog one way or another. And then, of course, because of it being on Netflix, it already has the ability to reach millions of people far wider than if it had been released uh, theatrically. So they get a lot of eyeballs on it, right? Apple. With Coda, movie came out in August theatrically. Uh, it had been sitting around for months, available to stream on Apple TV Plus. Which, unless if you watch Ted Lasso or one of their other hit TV shows, uh, the Morning Show, my favorite hate watch of all time. <laughs> there you go. This was truly an organic campaign in a lot of ways. What they did was they allowed for the buzz to steadily rise on its own, and then they started to capitalize when it really actually mattered a.k.a. during the voting period for the major guilds. So Ah. Netflix is spending all of this money 
and campaigning so hard during a period of time where, yes, it's important to build up that buzz uh, and you have all the critics reciprocating that with their best film award prizes and they're giving everything to power the dog left and right in November and December. But it peaked too early and voting still hasn't happened yet. So Oscar nomination morning, Power of the Dog has 12 nominations, CODA has three, and it looks like Power of the Dog is going to win Best Picture. How is a film with three nominations and missing like all these other required stats that us Oscar nuts, uh, you know, go crazy over? How is that going to defeat this huge giant of a movie that has all this power behind it? No pun intended. I think, and this is just one of many factors, four days before the SAG Awards, Russia invades Ukraine. It puts all of us in a very, very, very terrible mood. And then we watch the SAG Awards, and it's the first televised awards show. And what do we see at the end of the night? We see the cast of CODA all smiling. Everybody's happy. Everyone loves this feel-good moment for this little tiny movie. And now all of a sudden, people want to watch this movie. People want to feel good, as we said before. And the crowd pleaser is is exactly what we need at this point uh, in our lives. And... I think that it had a huge influence then because after SAG, PGA voting and BAFTA voting is going on and boom, it wins a PGA, wins a BAFTA. And what happens during when those awards are announced? Oscar voting. So just one thing kind of like leads into another and Apple like hit the gas pedal hard in those final weeks. It sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot of work in my opinion, even just hearing about the planning, (laughs) the 40 people on staff full time. What a gig. Oh, right. It's a machine. It's insane. The stuff that they do. I mean, like every time I hear an example of like handwritten letters being sent out to voters uh, because, Mm -hmm. you know, we missed an art director's guild nomination and we really want to get the art directors on our back for, you know, it's like all these little things that you hear about and you're just like, oh, my God, like this is somebody's job. Like, wow. Yeah, (laughs) totally agree with Matt. I think that this happens often. Whatever the early front runner is loses the momentum by the time that Oscar voting actually happens. Also, I think it has to be said, if Campion does not make that statement about Venus and Serena right before Oscar voting, Mm -hmm. I think it maybe goes another way. My my thought was that Belfast was going to be the spoiler. We thought so that too. We were going to have, yeah. I thought that maybe there was. I know it's a preferential ballot, but there was going to be kind of a split between like the sort of like more established like Power of the Dog as the serious art film versus Coda as the feel good crowd pleaser, and Belfast is kind of the middle point of both of those things. Mm-hmm. So I was not terribly shocked that Belfast won Best Original Screenplay, and I thought that that was a nice sort of like bridge between those two things. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, I the first time I was ever aware of Oscar campaigning and the fact that it wasn't just merit-based was when I was 10 years old and the year that Shakespeare in Love beat mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Had not seen either film at 10 years old. But I distinctly remember a lot of adults around me being like, what? Like, how does Saving Private Ryan not win that <laughs> award, particularly in that moment? Yeah. Or like, you know, this the greatest generation nostalgia and all of the sort of reverence for War II that was happening around then. Um, so to then have Shakespeare in Love come in and sort of, um, you know, blow everybody's minds and winning big. But yeah, it was such an interesting season. I, you know, I was skeptical that Power of the Dog was going to go the distance. I think a lot of people did not understand the ending of Power of the Dog. Yeah. Um, and struggled to figure out what the meaning of the film was. I know, I know, I know. Um, but I, I, I'm glad you mentioned sort of the the Apple Ted Lasso of it all because I think as a sort of brand, Apple is really leaning into this like yep. feel good entertainment mm-hmm. things that are going to feel soul nourishing. And I think Coda is a great example of that. Whereas you don't really leave Power of the Dog like feeling feeling like the. <laughs> the human experience has been affirmed for you and that you're feeling great. Like, you know, I felt great when I left that movie because I was just like, you know, the Gordon Ramsay, like, finally delicious, some good fucking food, like uh, a real movie. It was like some real, like, heft to it. It's funny you say that, Kate, because like, if you look at their contenders too, before this, Roma, The Irishman, like, Mm. these are movies that they're backing every year that have the pedigree and have all the goods to be that Mm. prestige movie. But Academy voters are 
not going for these type of movies that leave them feeling that way to your point. It's And look, let's be honest about Netflix's movie output. The the things people are rewatching are the Princess Switch trilogy, not <laughs> Power of the Dog. But on that You know, it's, it's interesting you say that too, uh Gemma, because um I spoke to so many people who uh voters who who said Tick Tick Boom should have been nominated. That was mm. their favorite. And to me, when I hear that, that also fits the mold of the type of movie that you you're seeing, you know, win Best Picture, a, a crowd pleasing film. So it, it, I don't really have so much a problem with the campaigning aspect. I just think that's part of the game. And, you know, it's it's like it's like watching politics only with less real world consequences. And you're just <laughs> seeing uh you know, a game being played between these studios. But um, I do think they have to consider for their output, maybe not next year because next year is already set, but for the following year, maybe um, the type of movie that voters are going for. Yes, we have Mm. our moonlights and we have our parasites. But if you really stop and think about it, those two were also real crowd pleasers in their own unique ways. Moonlight has a tremendous amount of empathy that one can connect to. It doesn't leave you feeling cold, detached, or challenged. Um, and then Parasite is an exhilarating thriller with a ton of uh, nuance and complexity to it that uh, you know got people talking in all the best ways. So I, I think that there is a trend here ever since the preferential ballot has been brought back since 2009 to vote on Best Picture. And they just need to crack what kind of a film that is. And once they have it, I think that they'll uh, be able I've to got get it. there. Netflix, Netflix, call me. It's the middle, it's the Coda <laughs> Deaf Middle Road movie starring Troy Kotzer and Paul Racy. Netflix Just call me call you after that, after that conspiracy theory that you pulled up. Netflix <laughs> deleted your contact information. <laughs> but wait, wait, wait. If you were going uh, on letterbox stats for best picture, on highest rated... Yusuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car would have Great won. Great If you were going on Letterboxd Stats for Best Picture, based on something we love, I, I get obsessed with the data that we can pull. And one of my favorite, we've been talking a lot about crowd pleasers and um, and and actually the key to Power of the Dog is to rewatch it. And that, that, you know, brings me to this, is every year we do the most picture awards, not the best picture awards. And what this is, is we look up the stats on letterbox members who have logged the best picture finalists two or more times, which gives us a different kind of, it doesn't have to be the highest rated. It's just, what is the film we return to again and again and again and again? And Slim, I'm excited. I'm excited to drop this on you because this film has not been mentioned in this podcast yet. But at number one, what do you think it is? I mean, it's fairly obvious. I I, I have a feeling Mm-hmm. Uh, so of the 10 that were nominated this year, which one is the most rewatched? Yep. Yep. Okay. I have a feeling that it is Don't Look Up. Close. Okay. I was only Close. going with that because I know it was very popular on Netflix. Close, but no spice. It's June, mm-hmm. of course. Oh, darn it. Why should, why, I should have right. known that. <laughs> yeah. I'm a guy who saw yeah. June like five times right. in the theater. I should have known there this. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that's the same. When we, and when we tweeted the stat out, you know, I, I, we were tweeted back by so many Letterbox members just with screenshots of the number of times that they had logged June. And so we've got June at number one. Don't look up number three. West Side Story. Like, those all make sense. Power of the Dog at number five. Those all make sense because they, you know, they have big streaming releases. But Licorice Pizza at number two is what really confounds me. I think that's fascinating. It's just, it's the power of PTA, right? The power of piracy also, (laughs) I think, probably has to be said. Um, Yeah. Because that was like, that was the film Twitter movie this year. And I gotta say, you know, regardless of all of the conversations around Licorice Pizza, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I love his films. For me, Licorice Pizza is in the lower tier of them. I thought it was a fun time and yeah. that was about it. Like, yeah. I it was fascinating to me that it became obvious. There are obvious things that needed to be discussed with the movie and mm-hmm. the sort of larger film discourse. But it is uh, why that has been the hill that so many people have wanted to die on this year is kind of baffling to me. I'm like, Guys, Phantom Thread was so much better. Like, I don't, it's, it's just a better movie. It's more accomplished. It's more together. It has more to say, I think, mm-hmm. ultimately. But 
Yeah, I've been fascinated. I just do want to hear from Slim on this. Though. I think Can even we... my yap shout about this Dune movie. So I, I, like... I have many friends that are that have contributed to the sixty-two thousand three hundred fifty-nine rewatches. And by the way, Licorice Pizza is not even close. It's seventeen thousand. Dune ran away with wow. the dang thing. Ran away with the dang thing. By comparison, when it was the uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood versus Parasite year, there were eight hundred rewatches between them. Mm-hmm. Like this is wow. forty four thousand rewatches wow. more yeah. that June had. God. I mean, so why Slim? I, why? So, so I have uh, once, I have very good, good. I have very once good friends. Very good friend that are uh, they they host a podcast called Dune Pod. It's about Dune, and they grew up on the Dune books. You know, Gen X podcast. So their whole year was leading up to this moment, got delayed, so we're continuing to hear about it. So then my podcast, 70mm, did an episode on Dune. We had to wait a little bit. So all these reviews coming in, it's like the second coming of Christ, these reviews about Dune. It's like they've never experienced the, what what happened in theaters. And uh, so my my gripes with Dune, I, I felt like I got a little swindled by Legendary because when that movie came out, you know, the go see it in theaters, go see it in theaters so we can make, maybe we'll get a part two. And, you know, they didn't really announce part two until like that Sunday of the weekend or something like that. So mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, now we're going to do part two. There's no way you made this movie not thinking you're going to do part two. <laughs> I was you know, scammed you know by you, legendary, <laughs> scammed into, they, into paying money for this movie. I really do think that it was legit because Blade Runner 2049 had performed below expectations for Warner Brothers. So if this movie did not perform well, I do think that it I do think they would have killed, you know, pulled the plug on it, honestly. Um, but it would have had to have been like a disastrous number. One you know, million it, like, dollar it would box have had to office. Have been really was, bad. Yeah, they probably did say like, Denny, you have to make more than one million dollars at the box office. You're not getting <laughs> to make the second half of this movie, my friend. So, yeah. So by the by the by the time I got to see the movie, I, I kind of like was. I was like thinking about that the whole time. I was like, you know, this isn't really a full movie. And then I was starting to think like, in what world would this movie exist alone forever? Like I just couldn't picture Legendary or Denny or HBO not like saying, we actually were going to make two movies. We just wanted to get you in theaters to make some money here to not embarrass yourself. So that that whole experience just kind of like sullied me a little bit. But you know what? I Even even if that is true, even if. That's my conspiracy um, corner now. It came, but it came out during a time where, yes, people were going back to theaters, but they weren't like really going yeah, back to yeah. theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dune really was for a lot of people uh, their first movie back uh, this year, at least from my experience. And then, and then mm-hmm. of course, the rest of the world, their first movie back was a little Spider-Man movie that came out a few <laughs> months later. I uh, saw, no, I took myself to June, I saw it at IMAX. I took, mm-hmm. took myself to the IMAX and saw it. But for the most part, I mean, it was the 31 days of uh, HBO Max for people. Mm-hmm. Like I was going to say, counterpoint, you cannot take your bong into a movie theater, which is, <laughs> in my mind, the best possible way to watch either Dune, the David Lynch yes. one, or the Denny Villeneuve one. So I had a great time watching it sure. at home. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think it. I think it is time to discuss justice for the geek, one of the most robbed movies, uh, the most beautiful to look at. The, uh, as I like to call it, uncut gems, but make it carnies. Kate, this is your pick. Like, it was a really good, there was something for everyone at the Oscars this year, except PTA and GDT. So let's talk about Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. I was going to say, we're talking about all these feel-good movies. And what Guillermo said this year is, let's feel bad, everybody. Um, Which reminds me of that great clip of Trent Reznor at a Nine Inch Nails show where he comes out and he's like, hey, yeah, you guys here to have a good time? Great. Well, that was the last band. We're here to have a bad time. Um, And I think that was very much the vibe with Guillermo and Nightmare Alley. I also want to shout out, and I, you know, have not done a good job of this personally, but so much of Nightmare Alley, I think, needs to also be attributed to Guillermo's partner creatively and in life, Kim Morgan, who is Mm -hmm. a brilliant film writer and has Mm -hmm. made her transition to screenwriter with Nightmare Alley. And to me, both of their fingerprints are so all over this film. I don't know. I wanted to talk about Nightmare Alley for a couple of reasons. I was just so struck by, to me, this is like 
there have been a couple of films this year that feel like the end of an era to me. Like I would put Last Duel in the same category of just like, we're not getting very many movies like this anymore. Like, mm -hmm. yes, we will get one or two from a prestige streamer every year, but like, probably not from Searchlight anymore. Like, probably not at that sort of level unless you're a Guillermo or a Quentin Tarantino or somebody in, in that vein. Um, but, you know, I really liked Shape of Water. I think it's a beautiful film. I think that it's, you know, obviously spoke to people who are not even fans of horror, not even fans of Guillermo del Toro, and really resonated with Oscar voters because it is a fully complete vision. And I think it's a Nightmare Alley is a really interesting counterbalance to that. You know, Shape of Water is about embracing ourselves as we are fully and sort of learning to celebrate that and, and deal with it. And in its own way, Nightmare Alley is about the same thing. It's just like going in a very dark direction. Um, but I just think Nightmare Alley is a stunning film. I did not get to see it in a theater because it was when Omicron was surging and even just watching it on Hulu, I was blown away. I mean, Guillermo's movies are always an absolute treat for the for the eyes, but this was on another level in terms of the practical sets, the stunning costumes, the stunning cinematography, some just incredible 50s noir lighting that I feel like mm, you're just mm. not seeing in studio movies anymore and some terrific performances. I was an avowed Bradley Cooper hater for a very long time. And then I saw A Star is Born and I was like, ooh, I'm wrong about Bradley Cooper. And then seeing yeah. this, I was like, oh yeah, I'm definitely wrong about Bradley Cooper. Like, you know, it's a difficult lead role. It's interesting to me that it was going to be Leo and then Leo fell off. Um, I think Bradley Cooper is way more interesting. He's way more believable. For me, the most egregious snub for the entire Oscar season is David Strathair not being nominated oh my for Best God. Supporting Actor for Nightmare Why Alley. was my boyfriend left out of the conversation <laughs> so Gemma, tragically? both of our outrageous. boyfriends. Oh, come He's on. so wonderful. And it's like, I don't know, to me, Nightmare Alley is the kind of film that even 10 years ago would have done better with voters, would have won a couple of craft awards. That's something that frustrates me about the, the Academy Awards now it seems like there is way less of a spread of awards. It is very much concentrated on five to seven movies, and that's pretty much it. Whereas mm -hmm. I felt like when I was watching the Academy Awards growing up, you would be like, oh, cool, Marie Antoinette won Best Costumes. Like, that's not a movie that's going to be nominated for Best Picture, but that's the right award for that movie. And like, I just would have loved to have seen production design go to Nightmare Alley because mm -hmm. I do oh my think God. it is so immersive. Dune is also beautiful and immersive, and I don't want to take anything away from that win. I just think it's a little bit harder to pull off in a kind of movie for adults, Nightmare Alley, not a big sort of launch into a franchise. Um, I'm glad you just said yeah. movie for adults, because when I think of Nightmare Alley, I do, I do think it's a movie for grownups, you know, it's a movie for yeah. us to just, just really get our teeth into. And speaking of the production design, we, you know, editorially on Journal, um, which is Letterboxd's online magazine, we, we generally talk to filmmakers, writers, directors, but often we will reach out to a craftsperson when it's something that we've all just fallen over ourselves about. And Tamara Deverell's work on Nightmare Alley is extraordinary. And yeah. so we had Isaac Felberg reach out and, and do an interview with her, which is on our HQ page. And it's so great. And she talks about the Ugh, the pickled punks, which is the jars full of, oh my God, that Willem Dafoe <laughs> keeps, you know, out the back of his tent. And just all the detail of it is so ugh, sort of grommety and gross and but grossly wonderful. And then and then for me, my favorite part was um Kate Blanchett's character's office, which mm. Tamara Deverell based on this incredibly beautiful office that is in the Brooklyn Museum, which is one of the two Brooklyn Museum exhibits I would always make sure to go and see every time I went into that museum. It's just so delicious and you just want to live in there. It's like, can that be the letterboxed HQ now, please? It's <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. But I also had, I had a really interesting relationship with this film, with Bradley's performance, because, you know, and I, this is a total humble brag because this doesn't happen to me very often, but... One of the few times I saved up money to go and see an actual show on Broadway, it was Bradley Cooper as the Elephant Man. Oh, and, yeah. And right. And you're thinking, well, hang on, what? Hollywood handsome stud 
as Elephant Man without any prosthetics or, you know, any special tricks. He's just going to do it with his body. Okay, I'm, I'm game to go and see what this is like. That man can transform like nothing else. And I think my one complaint about Nightmare Alley would be that he was sort of too clean for too long, given what I've <laughs> seen him do in two hours on a stage in front of a live audience. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, also has to be said, you know, this is my beat. Thank you to Bradley Cooper for doing a full frontal shot in Nightmare <laughs> Alley when your A-list compatriots are not doing that. Um, and really, I that's my one sort of gripe with Nightmare Alley is I wanted more development of that relationship between him and Tony Collette. I thought that was fascinating. And speaking <laughs> mm. of open relationships uh, yeah. with her and Stray Theron. But yeah, I... I had read a couple of interviews where Guillermo and Bradley Cooper were sort of dual praising each other. And Guillermo was talking about the fact that now that Cooper has directed a movie and sort of understands that, he felt like it was really great to work with him because he sort of came at it from that director's POV too. But yeah, Nightmare Alley to me strikes me as the the kind of movie that like the reputation is only going to grow over time. I still don't think people know you can watch it on Hulu and HBO Max. I'm dying to see the black and white version. I think that that's going to have some legs as a sort of interesting curio. Um, but it's just, I don't know, like you said, Gemma, it's its a movie you can sink your teeth into at every visual and sonic level. And there's just so few things we can do that with anymore, at least in the cinematic phase. I, I do have to say, I, I saw in, in our notes for this week about the full frontal, I missed it. Was it in the bathtub scene? Oh, it's scene? there. I mean... It's in the bathtub scene. And it's, <laughs> riff, it's I think it's a it's a riff on the portrait of a lady on fire mirror shot because you mm. only see it in a oh. mirror that is above the bathtub. I was going to say, it's, HBO Max, screw me out of this because that's where I watch it. And <laughs> I remember three this year, though. It was uh, Simon Rex and also Cumberbatch in Power for the Dog. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. like, wow, the t- how the turntables have turned tables. We love to see it. Big year for male frontal and, and also for your man ass list, it's, which I'm sure must just be continues growing. to grow. By the week. Slim, Matt, what are your uh, star ratings for Nightmare Alley just before we move on? Uh, three and a half stars uh, for me. I thought that the... Solid? I, I, I liked the movie quite a bit and I recommend it to people for sure. Um, something about the two halves nature of the movie uh, didn't quite work for me. I found myself liking one half more than the other half. Um, particularly in my case, it was the second half out when they got away from the carnival. I don't, but I do think, though, that it has probably the best ending of any movie that I've seen this year. I think mm-hmm. that final moment with Bradley Cooper is astonishing, and it left my jaw on the floor when I saw it in the theater. And um, the craft work, as mentioned before, is impeccable. Um, I wanted to give a shout, a shout out to Isaac, actually. He's one of my favorite uh, writers and interviewers, and I and I did read his interview with Tamara, and I um, was very, very impressed with uh you know, all the detail that she provided behind her work. I too had a chance to talk with her and I, you know, told her, I was like, I feel like I could spend hours chatting with you about this movie from Kate's office to the carnival to everything that they just did in that movie. It was just awe inspiring. So I'm with Kate. I think it should have won production design. I predicted it to win production design actually. Uh, But I understand why Dune won because while Nightmare Alley is a period film filled with a lot of detail, Dune is a from the ground up, complete world building. So, like, I get it. Does it have pickled punks? No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was at three stars for Nightmare Alley. I thought it also should have won. Uh, but let's talk about Cyrano, though. This is our mm. final movie for our Oscar faves, our Oscar fever episode. And this is Gemma's pick. Cyrano, Joe Wright, amazing piece on mm. Letterboxd. Gemma, let's, let's take us through this journey for this film. It feel like to slow dance in sunlight with someone you love. Look, Joe Wright, um, romance king. I it took me a while to come to his films. You know, his Colin Firth was my Mr. Darcy, and uh, so Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice didn't strike me the first time round. Uh, but you know, the the hand flex gang got me. 
And I was like, I've got to go back and take another look at this film and take a look at the way he made it and these conversations and the way they unfold. And I just, I love his work. And so I was really pumped. And I also love The National. I've seen them like a bunch of times. You don't, you don't live in Brooklyn and not see The National <laughs> up, in, up in Prospect Park sort of true, once true a year. True story. <laughs> true story. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, half of them drink at my local bar. So yeah, it's all good. So I was excited and I do love a musical. I love any kind of musical. I love the cheesy ones. I love the tap dancing ones. And I love weird ass, sad white boy rock musicals uh, composed by the members of The National. And, uh, and Corinne Besser, by the way, when we're speaking of partners, speaking of Kim Morgan, uh, you can't really talk about the work of The National without talking about Matt Berninger's partner, Corinne. She's a, she's essential to their work. But, um, I mean, what can I say about Cyrano? They botched the release. Uh, mm-hmm. They botched the awards campaign. Mm-hmm. Peter Dinklage is a thirst god. He should have been in the best actor conversation. This yep. should have been in the production design conversation. Um, for me, I just... I watched it on date night, but hilariously not with my partner. Uh, we went out. <laughs> we went. We were on holiday. We went out on a date night dinner. Then we came home, and then my 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 mum friend who was holidaying with us, me and her sat down to watch it. And honestly, we just. I, I, I'm a film watching cynic, but every five minutes we just turned to each other, clutched our breasts inside. It was ridiculous. And most movies, I'm happy to just watch and let them wash over me but this one I have become obsessed with the production detail obsessed with the fact that they made this in Sicily during the during the pandemic obsessed with the fact that the very very best song the very best scene which is the soldier song wherever I fall was filmed on the side of Mount Etna uh, during an unplanned snowfall and then Mount Etna started erupting and yep ash started falling and they had to just quickly get their shots and then clear off and they left half of the set on the side of the mountain to just be covered in ash I don't know I just romantically I love it I will I will echo what you said before about Dinklage um I too felt like he deserved to be in that lineup um because when I saw that movie at its world premiere at Telluride I got to admit didn't think the movie was that great but I thought he was so charismatic, so heartbreaking and so vulnerable in his performance that um, I was once again crying by the end of the film. And I could not help but say, well, I was mixed on the movie itself, but he elevated it to the point where uh, I actually ended up giving it a positive review in the end uh, because he really is the heart and soul of that movie. Uh, And it just felt How could the campaign just not be the staircase scene alone? The the sword choreography in that was Mm. exquisite. I mean, I I don't know what happened with that film all around, especially because it did premiere so early back in September. They had a Christmas release planned. And then they just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And then for this love story to come out in February and not even have it open on Valentine's Day weekend. Like, what are we doing? What are you doing? I have not. I have not seen it yet. But I will say I'm very pro Haley Bennett after watching mm-hmm. Swallow, which I thought was oh, a yeah. tremendous right. performance. Mm-hmm. And I, I think her and Joe Wright are really interesting as we're talking about filmmaking partners in life mm-hmm. and in work. That's a really interesting combo. I honestly haven't watched Cyrano yet because I know it's going to ruin me. Like, I'm an easy mark for the Cyrano story anyway. Um, But I know what you mean, Gemma. Like, there are always things that you're like, look, I know this is not objectively the best movie, but I'm telling you that I had the most emotional experience with this particular movie. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the stuff that stands the test of time. You know, I... I am a person who's like, my favorite movie of all time is Pretty in Pink. And like, that's on no <laughs> oh cinephiles. <laughs> like, that's on no greatest films list. But like, that's the film that I have the most sort of emotional experience and I want to rewatch over and over again. Yeah, and it's totally. great to find things like that where you're like, you know what? Even if there's some stuff in this that like, I'm maybe not 100% on Ducky. Um, it's nice to know that you can still have... <laughs> Andrew McCarthy's wig in the reshot final scene. I mean, oh my God. That's a whole different letterboxed episode, let me tell you. I think that's... Um, I, I'm just going to say, listeners, I think that might be a whole different podcast that Kate and I are about to start. <laughs> um, that, I am obsessed. 
obsessed with bad movie wigs, as my friends will tell you. <laughs> I I will freak out at a bad movie wig. Nothing takes me out of the experience more fully. And even from the Cyrano trailer, I was like, good wigs, good wigs throughout. Mm-hmm. Like you can so tell. Look, here's the thing. I gave it, I gave it the full five stars, knowing wow. that it was a 3.5 star film, which is, yep. <laughs> by the way, my happy place when it comes to movies. <laughs> and when Ella Kemp, who who is a letterbox writer uh, for us, <laughs> commented, well, really? I was like, yeah, all those 3.5 star babies who just aren't <laughs> voting with their hearts. So we've looked back at Oscar nominees and Oscar winners in our faith, but let's look ahead. What jumps to mind, Matt, for next year's Oscars? What's... What's on the radar? What do you think will be in the running? So I don't really like thinking about this until a couple months later, to be honest with you. I but, but that's because I like putting a spotlight on the movies in the first six months of the year that quite honestly struggle to be a part of the awards conversation. So I do mm. try my best over at Next Best Picture to still highlight those movies wherever I can. Uh, but, but... We do have a couple of movies that are on our radar that we are looking forward to because naturally, you know, you're always thinking about what is going to be the next best picture. Uh, So, uh, listen, I think that everyone needs to be ready for James Cameron to redefine what is possible in cinema again with Avatar 2. Hell yes, Um, Matt. Every time that guy just has this habit of every time us doubting him, he just comes out and goes, you guys doubted me? <laughs> well, here's the next billion dollar <laughs> film I made. Um, I, I do think that Martin McDonough might be back again this year with the Banshees of uh, Ina Sheeran, uh, starring Colin Farrell and uh, uh, Brendan Gleeson, his uh, two in Bruges uh, mm-hmm. stars. And I think Colin Farrell so far is off to an amazing year with After Yang and the oh, Batman. Yeah. So we'll have to yep. see where that goes. Matt, can I uh, ask a favor? That sounds like a do- dude party to me on that list. <laughs> Got any, got any, got any ladies or envies you've got an eye on? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Sarah Polly is going to be back uh, this year. We're very, yes. very excited for her to see where uh, she goes. Um, uh, Greta Gerwig, uh, but she's the one that really stands out to me as someone who could be benefiting from, you know, like kind of like that best director narrative for a filmmaker that we haven't properly recognized yet. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, Gerda Gerwig has Barbie, which I I know kind of I roll my eyes out a little bit. But then again, listen, <laughs> Lady Bird, Little Women, the track record is there. She's in the club. Who knows where that's going to go? Uh, Olivia Wilde yeah. will have uh, Don't Worry Darling with Harry Styles and um, Florence Pugh, who everybody's really excited about right now. It's just, it's just going to be bonkers. I can't <sighs> even... I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I think the one that I'm probably most excited for because I thought it was going to come out last year, but it's coming out this year is the Top Gun. Oh, no, (laughs) not Top Gun. (laughs) I mean, I am excited. Top Gun, Tom Cruise. Thank you. You're right. You're absolutely right. In my own unique way. Um, I can't wait to see that in IMAX. But uh, I was saying The Whale, uh, which is Darren Aronofsky. Uh, This is uh, a leading role for Brendan Fraser where he's playing a. 600 pound obese man who's looking to reconnect with his daughter after leaving her years earlier for his gay lover. And Brendan Fraser is somebody that, you know, we're all kind of wanting a comeback narrative for. And I think that working with Aronofsky, who was able to work miracles with Mickey Rourke and the wrestler uh, could give us an amazing story this year for Brendan Fraser, possibly depending on how Mm -hmm. that, movie plays because uh, Aronofs- Aronofsky can be a very polarizing filmmaker. So uh, there's a lot to look forward to. Kate, I was thinking that the year 2022 is already off for a, uh, a pretty good start for you with uh, Deepwater. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that movie. What are we going to do the Deepwater podcast? Um, oh yeah, listen, Deepwater, is it a great movie? No. Am I going to watch it 10,000 more times? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> It's pure cinema. It's pure cinema. It's absolutely batshit. I had a wonderful time. I cannot wait to watch it again, honestly. (laughs) We need more erotic thrillers, erotic anything. Are we getting more this year? I don't know. That's a great question. It's funny, Matt, you going through your list makes me realize that I don't even really know what's upcoming for the rest of the year, aside from the like really, really big stuff. I will be very curious to see Avatar 2, you know, 
I am the age that sort of I came online in part as a as a movie person because Titanic came out when I was in second grade and like seeing that movie in a movie theater at eight years old was a truly mind blowing experience for me. Um, and you know, I am not as big of an Avatar fan as some people, but James Cameron is one of those people for me that I will always give a chance to. I'm curious to see what it's going to look like. Again, like Dune might be best watched in the comfort of our own home uh, with perhaps some herbal refreshments, but we'll just find out. Um, I am dying to see women talking. I adore Sarah Mm. Pauly. I think Take This Waltz is one of the best films of the last 20 years, hands down, no questions asked. And I'm really excited to see her come back to narrative filmmaking. So that's probably my most anticipated of 2022. And I think will be a nice sort of or, um way to sort of think about Me Too and what's happened over the last couple of years now that we've had a little bit of distance from it. And I think that story will be in extremely capable hands with Sarah Polly and her very talented cast. Why, why, why isn't there a Gemma and Kate like erotic thriller podcast where you both go <laughs> we through just the, created I it. I mean, why is this not happening <laughs> next week? Let's no, put this I'm on the calendar. Say, there are erotic thriller podcasts out there. Kate and I are available to be guests on them. <laughs> I am very, very interested in how we can spin an entire season out of Pretty in Pink and everything oh involved God. in that film. <laughs> thanks for listening to The Letterbox Show. And thanks to Kate Hagen from The Blacklist and Matt Neglia from Next Best Picture for helping us work through our Oscars trauma for another year. You can follow Kate, Matt, The Blacklist, myself, Slim, and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. You can also hear me on our other podcast, Weekend Watch List with Mitchell and Mia. New episodes every Thursday. Thanks to our crew, Moniker for the theme music, Vampiros Dansotech, Jack for the facts, our booker, Linda Moulton, for looking after our guests, and Sophie Shin for the episode transcript. And to you for listening. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production. Hey, Slim, do you know what the uh, trick to podcasting is? No, tell me. Find out what they're afraid of and sell it back to them. <laughs> Podcast.